This event was recorded live at the 2019 Edinburgh International Book Festival, a 17-day celebration of words and stories welcoming authors and audiences from around the globe. You can hear more events by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast, and watch event videos at edbookfest.co.uk and on YouTube at edbookfest. Well, we're getting up and running. Good morning. <laughs> And welcome to the 2019 Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name's Nick Barley, I'm director of the festival. What an honour it is to be director of this great festival that's made so great by its audiences and so great also by its authors. It's a big festival, as you know, and it's the festival that's not just the vision of one artistic director, but of many, many people who've put together the programme this year. And this year in particular in a year in which we need new stories, in which we need new perspectives on the world. I'm very, very honoured that DeRay McKesson has agreed to be one of our guest selectors. DeRay's story, in case you're not familiar with it, is that he gave up his job as a teacher in order to protest against the actions uh, after the death of a young man in Ferguson in the USA. And he spent something like 400 days protesting to try to improve the rights of people of color, of black people, and of Afri African Americans in the USA. And his work was instrumental in the launch of Black Lives Matter. And it seemed appropriate to me that we should ask DeRay, not just to talk about his own life and work, but also to select some other writers whose work we need to hear in this time when we need new stories. We also want to hear your views. And Audiences inspire authors just as much as authors inspire audiences. And so I really hope that you will help me to inspire today's authors by giving them a huge welcome to the 2019 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Please welcome DeRay McKesson and Ibram Kendi. Good morning, everybody. We're excited to be here. And Ibram, thanks for, thanks for being able to do the festival. Of course, yeah. Thank you for being a selector. I mean, it's, it's, it's an honor. So yesterday, uh, August 9th, was actually the five-year anniversary of the protests in St. Louis. We were in the street for 400 days. It was a long 400 days. Uh, one of the reasons why I invited Ibram to be here for this conversation is that I've learned so much from his work around anti-racism, his work around pushing us to think deeper about how do we build an anti-racist society. And I'll start with one of the things that we say as organizers is this idea that uh, people talk about truth and reconciliation a lot, but we would say the truth has to come before the reconciliation. And Ibram, I feel like so much of your work is about sort of pushing us to think about the truth first. I think about his book won the National Book Award, Stamp from the Beginning, his first book. This, this book actually isn't even out yet. It's just out here at the festival first, which is exciting. <laughs> but how did you get into this work as a historian? I think kind of like you, I, I saw a glaring and a serious problem, um, and more specifically, the way in which Americans and even people across the world understood the history of, of, of racism. And, and even more specifically, I realized that the history of racist ideas, which was my last sort of, what my last book was on, primarily left out 
a very sort of glaring and popular kind of racist ideas. And I'm specifically talking about assimilationist ideas. I'm specifically talking about these notions that certain racial groups are culturally or even behaviorally inferior. And, and that's why racial disparities and inequities still exist. There is something people think <laughs> that, that is wrong with, with people of color. And whether that comes out of their culture, whether that comes out of even poverty, whether that comes out of oppression. And, and those ideas aren't even considered racist ideas. People who believe them think that they're, or continue, consider themselves to be not racist. And so you're absolutely right. I wanted to sort of set the record straight and, and begin start telling the truth about what people really think. Now, this book is called How to Be an Anti-Racist, and a lot of people are like, what is an anti-racist? Uh, <laughs> You know, back at home, we have some trouble with our president, if you haven't heard. It's a, long, it's a hard times at home. And uh, Ibram is somebody who's really helped the country think about this idea of what does it mean to be racist? Because at home, there are a lot of people who are like, they do something really bad, and then they're like, I'm not racist. Uh, can you talk about where that impulse comes from? And then what does it actually mean to not not be racist? Uh, which is what you talk about in the beginning here, so this is sort of a spoiler for the the introduction. Um, but what does it mean to be anti-racist? Well, I think the impulse comes from how people define a racist. So people imagine that a racist is first and foremost a bad person, an evil person. They think of a racist as a fixed identity. They think of a racist as a tattoo. They think that a racist is in one's bones. So the president said, I don't have a racist bone in my body. But even Democratic president, uh, candidate for president in Joe Biden said, I don't have a, a bone in my body. So really across the ideological board, people think that, that it is essential to a person being um, racist. And, and, and so of course, if, if, if you think that way, <laughs> no matter what you say or do, your response is gonna be, no, no, I'm not that. I'm not racist. But, but, I, but I would say that we shouldn't be defining a racist uh, in that way. It's not a fixed category. It's not a slur. It's a descriptive term. It, it describes what we're saying or doing in the moment, and we change. And so when someone is saying something like African nations are shitholes, when, when someone is saying that Baltimore is infested, when someone is saying that Latinx immigrants are invading this country, they're saying racist ideas and they're being racist. When, when someone is supporting policies that, that ban people or that round up 600 people in Mississippi, Latinx people causing their children to have nowhere to go, they're, they're executing a racist policy. They're being racist. But then on the flip side, when they're charged with being racist, whether they're Donald Trump, whether they're white nationalist, whether they're Jim Crow segregationist, whether they're a colonizer, whether they are a slaveholder or a slave trader, what is their response? No, I'm not racist. And so in many ways, the term not racist has always been a term of denial. It has always been a term of, I am not guilty, no matter what the person has actually done. And it really has no meaning other than as a term of denial. And so when a, when a, when a term has no meaning, we should probably stop using that term. But anti-racist actually does have meaning. And so if a racist believes that certain racial groups are better or worse than others, 
in anti-racist thinks that there's nothing wrong or even right with any racial group, that, that the racial groups are equals. If, if a racist is supporting policies that create racial inequities and racial injustices, then uh, an anti-racist is, is supporting policies that create racial equity, that, that create racial justice. Yes. <laughs> that is really good. Um, and the examples that he gave are real examples at home. I don't know if you heard about Mississippi. Trump just arrested 600 people, 600 people on the first day of school. Uh, schools weren't notified. There were a lot of people that got arrested. The kids were left at school. It was a real, uh, real nightmare home. What is the relationship between racist ideas and racist policies? This is sort of a teaser for the last book before we get into this book. Sure. So, so we have been taught, and when I say we, I'm talking about really people across the world, have been taught that, that what caused people to institute racist policies, whether that's you know, enslaving and slave trading tens of millions of people in Africa, whether colonizing entire continents, uh, whether um, performing genocide and executing genocide on, on tens of millions of people, that, that what caused people to institute, to go about executing these racist policies was because of their racist ideas. That people enslaved people because they thought they should be enslaved, because they thought they were the cursed descendants of Ham, or they thought they were somehow civilizing them after being in, apparently running around and, and, and knocking into trees for thousands of years in Africa, since apparently that's all we were doing. Um, and, and so what I'm ultimately saying is that we've been led to believe that racist ideas lead to racist policies. We've also been led to believe that people who've produced racist ideas do so because of their ignorance or because of their hate. You know, back home, whenever Trump says something that's racist, the common response is, oh, he's so ignorant. He just must not know about Baltimore. He must not know about Nigeria. He just must not know about these places and people. And that's why he's saying that Robert E. Lee, who was a Confederate general, was an honorable person. He just must not know about history. Or he just must hate people of color. So, so we believe that it's ignorance and hate that causes people to produce racist ideas. And, and people's racist ideas lead them to supporting and instituting racist policies. But I actually argue and stamp from the beginning, and, and I you know, continue to argue in How to Be an Anti-Racist, that it's actually quite the opposite. That, that people, out of self-interest, institute racist policies. I'm going to slave trade, enslave, segregate, mass incarcerate people out of political or even economic or even cultural self-interest. That is going to then lead to all sorts of racial inequities the only, the only two explanations for any sort of racial inequity is either it's the result of bad policy or bad people. I'm going to tell people it's not my bad policies. It's the result of those inferior people. So black people are twice as likely to be unemployed in the United States, not because of racist policies within our economic system, but because black workers are lazy, black workers are unqualified. So then people consume those ideas. And then they don't do what? They don't resist those racist policies. And then those who benefit from those racist policies are allowed to continue to benefit, all the while the people are going after the victims of those racist policies, right. as opposed to the, the true source of this race problem. 
And, and so actually, racist policies are leading to racist ideas, not the other way around. It is interesting. You know, I spend most of my time on issues of policing, and we run into this problem all the time. People think that it's like a bad police officer or that we need to like get a better prosecutor or a better mayor. And we're like, we actually want a system that works whether the people exactly. are good or bad, right? And you think about at home, a third of all the people killed by a stranger in the United States is actually killed by a police officer, which is sort of wild. And this is actually the first year ever where black people are more afraid of being killed by a police officer than being killed by community violence, which we never thought we'd see. Uh, I think about our, our, the setting, being in uh, such an old country, a country much older than our very baby country in so many ways. Uh, is there any, does racism manifest differently based on like sort of where it, where it is in the world? Did you find, is there, is there nuance in the way that racism manifests? <laughs> so I would say that first and foremost, that it seems as if every nation on earth presents itself as not as racist as the United States. <laughs> right. Just like, you know, 50 years ago, everybody would position themselves against what? South Africa, right? So in a way, the United States, particularly Trump's United States, has become this sort of paragon of racism. So we're not racist like them, or we're not racist at all, okay. right? And, and, and so for me, I determine the existence of, of racism in a country, not by what its politicians are saying, not by what its people are saying, not by how many people are saying they're not racist, but by whether there are racial disparities and inequities. And one of the things that some countries have done is they have refused to categorize in certain ways statistically by race, and then because they don't have the data to demonstrate racial inequities, they suggest that, oh, we're post-racial, or this nation is not racist, or we don't need to categorize by race because what? We are, quote, not racist. But you can't assess whether a nation is racist if you're not categorizing by race, because if you're not categorizing by race, you can't see racial disparities. And if you can't see racial disparities, you can't see racist policies. And if you can't see racist policies, you can't see the politicians and other people in power who are putting those policies in place. So I actually do think that those basic concepts like racial inequities, like racist ideas, like racist policies, like racist power sort of operates in each nation, but it obviously the people in power, the policies, the ideas are different based on the nature you know, of the country. Now, in the book, uh, you start with this anecdote about being a, being a preacher's kid. Um, before I ask you about the way you constructed the book, which is fascinating to me, uh, are, how has how being raised in the church in that way, how has that informed the way that you think about your work? I think probably the, the, the closest and most obvious way it informs my work is I, I talk about, as you know, like denial almost being like the heartbeat of racism. So we talked earlier about all of those people many of us would consider to be racist, self-identify as not racist. They're, they're obviously in denial. And really, I have yet to come across a person who we would diagnose as racist who's willing to say they're racist too. And so that's just essential to, to the way this sort of operates and functions. 
And so I would say, actually, that the contrast to racism, to the sort of heartbeat of, of racism is denial, is that the heartbeat of anti-racism is confession. And, and so growing up in the church, obviously, growing up particularly in the Christian church, both of my parents were ministers. Um, and obviously, one of the critical sort of aspects of being a Christian, particularly, we weren't Catholic, but obviously even more so with Catholicism, is confessing one's sins, right? Because you can't necessarily become saved, right, until you confess your sins. Become saved from what? Right, the evils of the world, the evils of the devil. You have to be willing to acknowledge and admit what you have done. And then typically Christians would say, yes, the reason why I have done these evil things is because I'm living in an evil world. In the same way an anti-racist would say, the reason why I've expressed these racist ideas is because I'm living in a racist world where it's our common sense to look at difference and think it's better or worse than, than our own. And so I would, I would probably say that that's probably the most obvious sort of encouraging people to confess their anti-racist ideas and in many and racist ideas. And in many ways, this book was a confessional. I like it. You know, one of the things that we say in organizing is this idea that white supremacy is a smog and we all inhale it whether we want to or not. We all participate in the inhaling. What we can do is make sure that when we inhale it, that we see it and that we don't exhale it. That part of our work is to name it as it comes in, but not replicate it as it goes out. Uh, why did you organize the book like you did? So you don't have your books yet, but uh, the, the chapters are like power, by, they're all one word, power, biology, ethnicity, body, culture, behavior, failure, success, gender. Why is this organized in this way? So I, I, I take a deep breath because it was, I mean, it was really difficult, you know, writing this book. Because ultimately what I wanted to do, and this really speaks to this, this question, was I not only wanted to sort of have this sort of personal narrative of my own sort of journey, uh, my own journey to striving to be anti-racist, really confessing many of the more horrific things I've thought and said uh, and done towards particularly black people, but I also wanted to sort of show the type of journey that each of us can take, conceptual journey, to be anti-racist. In other words, I wanted to sort of show how certain concepts build on each other. So for instance, I think the one of the early chapters is biology. So I sort of talk about the way in which an anti-racist and a racist would think about biology. And so obviously an anti-racist would say, as science has shown, that from a, from a genetic standpoint, there's really no such thing as racial distinction or racial difference. But if we want to talk about uh, racial distinctions or genetic distinctions, geneticists have actually found that West Africans are more genetically similar to people who live around here than people in East Africa. Um, but of course, the way in which we connect genes to race so deliberately, that seems preposterous to people, right? But that's actually scientifically the case. So, so once you recognize that we're pretty much the same, we're created equal, we're genetically the same, 99% the same, um, then the next step is saying, okay, we actually do have ethnic ancestry. That is actually different. So that's why the next chapter is, is, is on ethnic racism. So how do you understand ethnic, genetic, and ancestral difference while being an anti-racist? 
And then each ethnic group tends to have a different culture, right? So then how do you understand cultural difference as an anti-racist? And then each cultural and ethnic body exists, right? And so obviously the black body um, exists in, in the United States and, 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 and the way in which people look at bodies in the United States, and I would probably say here too, our bodies are looked upon as dangerous, right, fundamentally. And how does that sort of operate? And how does an anti-racist sort of operate? And then from there, you know, behavior, class, color. Um, and so what I'm ultimately sort of building on is how we're thinking and how we should be acting as an anti-racist from these different standpoints. And then ultimately, when I get to gender and, and, and sexuality, what becomes critical, I think, in those chapters is that it's impossible to be anti-racist if we don't have an intersectional uh, perspective. Boom. You, it almost was like a setup because I have a question <laughs> about the biology chapter. Uh, first is sort of just an explanation is that in this chapter you talk about sort of being a, over the phrase microaggression, sort of like past that because you root that in a period of post-racial politics, it seems. And if, if you remember President Obama, which we fondly remember because, Lord, we are struggling at home. Uh, <laughs> you know, one of the things that happened when Obama got elected is that people were like, you know, we have transcended racism. That racism was a thing of the past. Got a black guy in the White House. Everything must be better. Didn't turn out to be true. And um, would love to know like why you are, I didn't think, well, I remember reading this part and being like, okay, Ibram's over microaggression. <laughs> why over that term? Can you define the term for people that don't know the term? And then sort of why do you root that in a post-racial moment and you're past it? Sure. So microaggressions is, is really a term that primarily scholars use, but more and more regular everyday people are using it to sort of understand, particularly when subjective or uh, let's say people of color on their everyday experience, they are experiencing forms of racism. So whether that's a person, you know, you're moving into your apartment um, and a person thinks that you must be robbing that apartment, uh, whether you have locks and a person wants to touch your hair, uh, whether a person clutches their purse as they're walking by you, there are these sort of things that happen Min, uh, hour after hour, like regularly each day, uh, that really showcases another person's, in a sense, micro. And they, and the, those who, those who conceived of that term, distinguish it from a racist policy. Like these are sort of uh, things that is happening to you based on what other individuals are doing to you, sort of constantly on a daily basis. The the reason why I am a little over that term. <laughs> Is, is because, so it was actually coined in 1971, I believe, but it didn't really become a popular term within scholarly discourse, let alone everyday people, until the Obama era. And it was in this era um, of, as, as D. Ray stated, this post-racial era, that both liberals and, Demo both liberals and conservatives we're imagining that on some level, if not totally, the nation was post-racial. So we need to stop talking about and condemning racism. But racism persisted. So then in a, in a political moment where it is in a way becoming almost politically incorrect to use the R word, racism, 
what some scholars decided to do and what became popular was essentially creating or popularizing other terms that talked about racism without talking about racism. Mm -hmm. and, and one of those terms was microaggressions, right? Um, and so it became extremely popular during that period. And, I, and one of, another reason why I actually felt that the term racist abuse uh, was more exacting is because, I mean, from those examples that I described, it's in a way, as, 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 as a body or as a person who is regularly subjected to those types of things, it's equivalent to if any of us are in an abusive relationship and we're constantly being subjected to physical or even verbal abuse, we call that abuse because it literally impacts our emotions, it impacts how we go about each day, it literally has an emotional impact. And, and I didn't think, I don't think microaggressions is, is exacting enough to really speak through the toll that it takes, nor do I think it is the type of term that everyday people can really understand uh, its meaning. Yeah, my aunt is like, micro what? <laughs> but she is like racist, she's like, I get that. That makes sense to me. Um, you know, it was in that chapter that I was thinking about as somebody who has also written a book, there are a lot of things that don't make the book, right? Like you do all this stuff and then like that one chapter doesn't make it or the paragraph gets cut or the story gets cut. So I'd be interested to know, like what are some things that didn't make the book? Uh, so actually... It's real though. It, wait till y'all write a book. It is. Yeah. You like died over this one chapter and it, you'll, nobody will ever see it. So actually one of the things I was thinking about, the way in which I was initially thinking about ending the book was having this fictional sort of chapter that would, in a way, be a look into an anti-racist society in all of its imperfections. And, and I thought, because a lot of this, of course, you know, in, in a way, being anti-racist in a racist society, in a racist world, is in a, may, in a way dreaming, right? Is imagining, is, is being so completely different to, to other people around you and, and in a way you have to sort of have hope and imagination which is you know why your book was so essential and I think it's, it's, it would be a great book to be in conversation with my book and I thought that that would really sort of open up the mind and also it would open us up to see the way in which in a truly anti-racist society it would not just be better for people of color it would be better for almost everyone and, and, and I think because I think one of the myths, one of the greatest myths of, of the racist project, and one of the ways that I think it's particularly been able to control uh, white working class and even middle class people, and we're, we've begun to talk about this as it relates to white poor people, but not necessarily white middle income people. There's this belief that racist, a racist society is better for them than, let's say, an anti-racist society. And and it is without question that white middle-income people benefit from racism more than people of color. But the question is, if we had a truly egalitarian society, would they benefit more than the society that currently exists? So in the United States, for instance, white middle-income people are very happy with their highly resourced public schools and compare them constantly to the lower resourced schools of people of color. And so they're like, man, if we had an equal society, then our schools would be like those schools. 
as opposed to, you know what, my schools would be like the schools, the prep schools in New England for the super rich. You see the way that you can completely sort of shift. And, and so I wanted really for, for people to see that. And then also, as you know, you have people of color who in many ways are, who imagine also that a, a, a different type of anti-racist society in which they would lose, um, in which they recognize the ways in which in certain types of ways they gain when they're the only one. Right, uh, and, and I would want to show them that too, although some of them would still resist it. <laughs> and that chapter two also made me think about, you know, I'm, I'm not a historian, I'm an activist, spend most of my time around issues in policing, uh, but I have this idea that historians are always like discovering these new things that you didn't know existed, that you're like, wow, I thought this, and then you find this thing, you're like, whoa, even crazier. Uh, what were some of those things in the book, like, or in the process of writing this book? Were there things that you were like, okay, I thought this, and then you learn something that was just completely different than what you thought you might find? So I think it, was, it wasn't as much something that I found in sort of researching. I think, well, I would say the chapter on color. One of the chapters is on color or colorism, and I sort of talk about the way in which light people or light-skinned uh, black people, let's say, um, and I talk about the ways in which people view them as superior, and there are a series of racist policies that give them greater access um, and greater resources and opportunities than darker-skinned people of color. So I actually distinguish between what I call light people and dark people. And so I went in search of um, disparities, and the disparities currently between light and dark people, I mean, it's just... It's just overwhelming, and of course, I, I, I described and cited many of those, whether those disparities are local to the United States or even across the world. Um, but I think most of, most of what sort of shocked me was really looking into my own personal story. Hmm. Whether it was that I, I found out in the course of researching for this book that my great-great-grandfather was white, um, which was somewhat of a family secret, because <laughs> some, some parts <laughs> of the family we're saying that, oh, you know, that, that woman uh, was Native American. Right. <laughs> uh, but then, you know, the more research I did, the more I realized that this woman was, was biracial, my great-great-grandmother, or my great-great-great, my great-grandmother, sorry. <laughs> um, that was, of course, very revealing. Um, but then also in terms of, I would say, the, the chapters on gender and sexuality. Uh, you know, I, I knew, for instance, I, I talk about these two women who I went to graduate school with, Kyla and Yaba, who Kyla uh, was this sort of queer, very outspoken uh, black woman, and, and Yaba was, was bisexual, queer uh, black woman. They were both feminists. They were both very critical of black male homophobic patriarchs, and, and they created a, a discourse and, a, and, a, and an environment in my graduate program in which if you were sexist, if you were homophobic, um, and most of the people there were, were, were champions of black people, but they weren't necessarily champions of, of black women um, or black uh, queer or black queer women, uh, they were just not having it. 
and, and, and they, in a way, sort of, because I was afraid of them, <laughs> right? You know, you know I, I, didn't, I knew in many levels how much of an impact they had on, on me sort of challenging my own ideas about, particularly about black queer people and, and about black women. Uh, but I didn't really know the extent of it until I really started to reflect on it, until I really interviewed them, until I really interviewed other people, until I started to really recreate that story. And, and there was, there's no way that anyone can be an anti-racist if they do not view all black racial groups, let alone other races, as relatively, as basically equal. If they view certain racial groups as, as superior or more hypersexual or anything, that's a problem, that's a racist idea. And, and so I think they were critical in that development in ways I didn't realize until writing this book. In that chapter, you write, whenever Kai and Yaba were seated there, whenever they were, any, were anywhere, their presence was unmistakable, memorable, and unsettling and inspiring. I could go to war with them at my, at my side. I learned from them that I'm not a defender of black people if I'm not sharply defending black women, if I'm not sharply defending queer blacks. I read that because there are a lot of people, especially at home, who sort of participate in this logic that says, like, the gay agenda, right? This idea that there is that there are issues about race and then there are issues about sexuality, and that fighting about sexuality actually distracts us from this conversation about race. What do you say to those people? <laughs> I mean, I would say that you have black people who are being subjected to ideas, whether homophobic ideas, if you're talking about queer people in general, um, or um, what in the book I call queer racist ideas, which are specifically ideas targeting black gays or black lesbians. And then those very same people are subjected to uh, policies as a result of both their race and their sexual orientation, but more specifically their, that intersection. And, and so to deny that existence, to deny the existence of queer racism is to deny a form of racism, is to deny the way in which racism exists in that way. And so in many ways, depending on the type of forum, I would either call them a hypocrite <laughs> because I would say, you know, you challenge, you say when these other people say racism doesn't exist, you get upset at that, you challenge that, but you're simultaneously saying racism doesn't exist, particularly queer racism doesn't exist. Explain to me that contradiction. And I would say that every black person, just like every other person in any other race, is not just um, racialized. They, they also typically have a sexual orientation, they have a gender, they have a nationality, they have an ethnicity, and racism doesn't just function in this straight way that affects them uh, based on their race. It is typically intersecting in some critical way with all of these other forms of bigotry. And that's why to truly be anti-racist, you truly have to oppose every form of bigotry uh, in the world. Boom, there we go. <laughs> One of the things that you sort of recall to your first book in the failure chapter is a conversation um, about abolitionists, sort of the other side of the abolitionists, this idea, there's a notion that the abolitionists wanted to free slaves and, and they were wholly sort of noble about that, that mission and you sort of disrupt this idea of nobility by talking about the paternalism and, and other things. Um, 
how, how, how do you help people sort of reckon with this seemingly good group of white people who fought for the end of slavery, but still harbored these ideas that in some ways were like rooted in a racist ideology? I mean, I, I, one of the ways I tried to sort of do that is really compare that to the way in which that's functioning today. And so one of the most popular racist ideas that is very predominant among people, uh, particularly white people who, are, who I would consider either progressive or even radical, uh, is, this, is this idea I talk about in the book called the oppression inferiority thesis, which essentially argues that oppressive conditions, in, in that time, slavery, it wasn't just dehumanizing, the argument goes. It literally made black people into subhumans. And so that's why abolitionists, like most notably William Lloyd Garrison, who was probably the most prominent white male abolitionist in the United States, who of course came over here several times to speak, and um, he, he would talk about black people as black, enslaved black people as being brutes, as being imbruted. And, and why did he make that case? Because slavery was so horrific. Slavery was so dehumanizing. It literally made these people into brutes. Now, it, it sounds great from, a, from the standpoint of propaganda. In other words, oh my God, it's so bad that it's making these humans into basically virtual animals. But the flip side of that is you're saying what? These people are a brute. So that when abolition comes, people, abolitionists, are not going to say all these people need are, are rights and, 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 and resources. No, they actually need to be civilized back into humans, which is precisely what William Lloyd Garrison and other abolitionists said. We can't give these people 40 acres and a mule. They'll just ruin it. And you know what the black folks said in response to that? Who do you think did all the work? Right? <laughs> right? And, and, so, and so this idea that oppression literally is making black people inferior, the, 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 the oppression then was slavery. The oppression now was primarily poverty. And so people think that, that poor people or people growing up in impoverished neighborhoods, that the poverty is making them inferior, not making them sicker, which is a different conversation, not draining them of resources and opportunities, which is a different conversation. It's literally making their culture and behavior inferior. And, and, and so many white people believe that and believe that it's a progressive idea mm. without realizing that it is reinforcing racial hierarchy and then leading them to be paternalistic. Because obviously, if you, if you believe that these people need more than resources, if you believe these people need more than different policies, you're going to what? Out of care, be them for them. Oh, let me help you. Let me develop you. There's supposedly something called developing nations. Let me give you aid to develop you. No, all these people need is resources and, and opportunities. And, 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 and I think that's what white people, particularly white people who are striving to be anti-racist, should be seeking to do. Oh, I had never thought about this idea of like civilized back into humanity. You're right. That is, and that is so much of what Trump is doing with immigration is that this idea with like the kids and stuff is that like they are inferior people and that part of the immigration project is to actually like make them into worthy people. 
you know, one of the things, too, that I want to talk about is, like, the context within which both of the books sort of arose. The first book was sort of a, the heels of the protests had just yeah. ended at home, and, and this book is out, uh, going to be out in the uh, heels of a whole other set of protests around the guy in the White House. Uh, how has uh, we try, you know, so hard, y'all, so hard. Uh, how... How has the political context within which you wrote informed the way you thought about sort of freedom or liberation or struggle? Well, I think first, first and foremost, I don't think I would have even had the confidence that this book would be received uh, well, if not for the movement that you helped build, if not for the movement for Black Lives Matter, if not for the anti-racist movement that has been spanning the globe. Now, obviously, that movement wasn't enough to keep Trump you know, out of the White House, but that- The Russians helped him, just to be clear. Precisely. It wasn't yes. us. <laughs> uh, but it, it, this is a movement that, that exists. And, and as a result, you have so many people, and I think this was even before Trump, right? You had both Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton talking about institutional racism on the campaign trail, which was the first time two major candidates were talking about racism and in that type of way. And, and so I think that there was an appetite. People had reflected and recognized um, just how searing and pervasive uh, racism truly was because of, I think, the, the, the movements for liberation. And, and then finally, I, I think activists, and this is what I try to encourage other scholars to, to, to recognize, you know, activists always sort of cause me to basically have more hope. I mean, they do the impossible. I mean, what y'all did, I mean, you're, you're able to sort of achieve the, the impossible. And, and, and so if, if people on the ground, if activists on the ground can, can achieve the impossible, why can't we as scholars achieve the impossible from a literary standpoint, from a scholarly standpoint? Why can't we break new ground? Why can't we compel people to think differently about themselves? People think, some people thought, when we were really early on talking about this book, that no, it was impossible, it's gonna be impossible for people to reflect on themselves. Like they're so defensive about race that this would just be a lost cause. You know, maybe you should try to sort of just continue to write these narrative histories and, and not be so direct <laughs> um, in, in asking people to look in the mirror for the first time in their lives. But, but I feel like America is ready. I feel like the world is ready because of what activists have done. I agree. <laughs> now, we're gonna get some questions from the audience, but before we do that, um, in the failure chapter, you sort of go back to this, uh, this notion of the importance of defining terms. So you define the difference between demonstration and protest. So much of your work is about the act of definition in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about why defining the terms is a key part of this work if we're ever to build an anti-racist society? I, I think, obviously, when, when you have um, so many people, when you have someone like Donald Trump, saying they're not racist. <laughs> and not only that he's not racist, that he's the least racist person in the world. <laughs> Quote. Yeah, so when, when you have that, what that fundamentally, and then you have people like me saying, no, you're actually the least anti-racist person in the world, right? Um, 
I guess that wasn't as funny. Um, <laughs> and they haven't bought the book yet. Exactly. Back this. What, what, the only way in which he can make that case, the only way in which people across the world can make that case is if we are truly debating definitions. Right? And, and I think so many people self-identify as not racist, not only because they're defensive, but because they really, truly do not know a very clear and concise definition of a, of a racist, um, or even an anti-racist, um, or even, and so many people think that every single time people put up a, any, any single time people engage in activism, it is a protest, <laughs> right? Because they don't have a clear definition of, of, of what is a demonstration versus what is a protest. They don't have a clear definition of what is mobilizing versus what is organizing. And, and I think having those types of definitions can allow people to understand their racial reality. I mean, a lot of my work, very simply, is seeking to provide people with a, with, with a vocabulary for understanding their racial world for themselves. I mean, that's, if, if people can just take my work and say, okay, now I understand this, now I understand that, this is the term I should use for this and that, I, I think that that will be so useful for people because obviously, as you know, racism is deeply complex, but at the same time, there are ways in which we can clarify it. And, and I just wanted for people to have simple definition. That's why every chapter, almost every chapter, is, is prefaced with a definition so that we can really define our, our racial world. And what do you find that you know, I imagine you spend so much time talking about racism and anti-racism, and there are a lot of well-meaning white people who are sort of like, I get it, I'm ready, and then start to do some work and struggle. Like, what do you find to be the thing that people trying to be anti-racist, that they struggle with? Like, what are the things that you've seen that are common that people, like, become these roadblocks? And I know you talked about denial, but is it sort of around uncovering their own? I don't know, like, what's the what there that people struggle with? It seems to me, and I think... I think other people can probably, well, let me just say, I think it seems to me both that the definition that people hold for a racist, that it's a bad person, and the definition that people hold for themselves, that they're a good person. And, and so I think once they get rid of that definition, that racist is a, quote, bad person. I mean, abolitionists were racist. Civil rights activists were racist. Y'all face folks in the streets. <laughs> in Ferguson who were racist. I mean, this just because a person is doing good things doesn't necessarily mean that they are not thinking that on some level um, black people are the problem. Like, you know, the cat who, the guy who was killed in, in Baton Rouge, forgetting Alton his- Sterling. August, his, Alton Sterling. Alton Sterling, his, the person, I don't, I don't, I'm sure you saw this, the person who video, who, who, who caught that on footage is a massive black-on-black -black crime activist, right? Thinking that part of the main problem is black-on-black is -black crime, right? But he did a great thing, right, in capturing what happened to Alton. And, and so what I'm, I think that's hugely difficult for people to, to... But once they release that, once they release this sort of connection between bad person and racist, once they recognize it's actually what I'm doing and saying in the moment, and so from this day forward, I'm going to do and say anti-racist things. But then also, I think the other issue, as you know, is the connections that people have. 
And so and one of the reasons why people struggle in the United States is because typically if, if, if they're racist, their partner's racist, their friends are racist, the family's their, racist. their families are racist, everybody around them is racist, and one of the th social bonds that they have is saying that there's this Latinx <laughs> you know, invasion or that migrants are ruining England, right? And, and so these are the ideas that they share with people. So, so them moving to be anti-racist in a way causes them to move away from people they hold dear which is absolutely and, and you know, obviously very difficult for people to do, which I don't, I don't really know how to answer that <laughs> uh, and, and, and to really deal with that. I did want to ask because I could see somebody hearing what you just said and then sort of say this idea, can people of color be racist? So I would say yes. And, and I would say that, well, first and foremost, you know, as I talk about early in the book, you know, when it comes to black people, I view internalized racism as the real black on black crime. And, and, and I am, I've been trying to push back away from this idea that black people don't have power. Because I, the irony is that when you say black people don't have power, you are not recognizing people like Clarence Thomas, who has had the power, who's a Supreme Court justice in the United States, who literally has the power to flip the court. <laughs> um, you're not recognizing people like Ken Blackwell, who was the Secretary of State in Ohio when that state went to Bush, primarily because of his voter suppression machinations. But most importantly, you're not recognizing that every individual has the power to resist. And there are some people, some black people, who do not resist because they think black people are the problem. So they literally are, in fact, not using their power because of their racist ideas. Like, why are you going after these cops? And I mention a, a story in the, uh, in the book, on, in the black chapter, that talks about this, in which I was having this discussion with this black editor of a, of a newspaper that I was writing for um, when I was a senior in, in, in college. I had written a very, I had written a piece that was very critical of white people. Um, he, of course, had serious problems with it, not only because of his own ideology, but also because some of his white writers had written into his newspaper saying, how, how could you have this person on staff? And so he challenged many of the ideas that I had, and then eventually he flipped the script, sat there for a second, didn't say anything, and ultimately said, this is, a, this is a black guy, you know, you know I hate it. You know, I, get, I have a nice car, and I'm quoting him. But I hate it when, I get put it when I get pulled over and I'm treated like I'm one of them niggers. What he was saying, ultimately, is I am not one of those N-words. He was distinguishing himself. He was creating this racial group, the N-word, and distinguishing himself from them, and then simultaneously saying, I shouldn't, because who I am, because I'm an extraordinary Negro, I shouldn't be subjected to police harassment. And simultaneously, he was saying to the cop, you know what, you're not the problem, they're the problem. And so obviously, when you would obviously come and let's say organize in this community, he would resist you and say, oh, why are you trying to organize against the cops here, D-Ray? They're not the problem, black people are the problem. And, and so I, I, I think that, Obviously, I'm a little passionate about this, 
you know, because, because you know, as you know, D-Way, there are people we can't organize in our community. And, and we can't organize them, or we're struggling to organize them, because they view themselves as the problem. And, and that is a racist idea. They can't even see the way in which racism exists. Every time they falter in their lives, every time they look at racial disparities, they see what's wrong with black people. And the irony is they believe this because they've, they have consumed wholesale racist ideas primarily produced by white Americans. And, and so, you know, for me, I'm hoping that How to Be an Anti-Racist is, 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 is read by everyone, you know, including black people, because I think we too imagine that we're not racist or we can't be racist. And, and we too should be striving to be anti-racist. There we go. Thank you. I think we have time for a question. Uh, they're going to kill me. I think there's a mic around here. Somebody said there's a mic. Okay, we'll go right here. Uh, pink, pink shawl. I think that's a shawl. Is it a shawl? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hiya, thank you very much. Um, I recently heard um, a trans BIPOC, BIPOC activist describe race as like gender as being a societal construct. And I just wondered how you felt about that and is that something that can be part of our anti-racist work now or does it, have we just got too much else to do before we can get to that kind of point? So actually in, in How to Be an Anti-Racist, I, I identify... <laughs> just D-Ray need to roll on the road to me. <laughs> uh, I identify race as a power construct. And so when you look at the history of, of the, the, the construct of race, it has been produced by some of the most powerful people in the world for a very specific reason. And, and so I think we should actually understand it as, as more of a power construct of blended difference. In other words, the blending of all of these nationalities and ethnicities and cultures and, and, and classes and, and genders into one people. That's, to me, uh, how we should understand it. Uh, stripes. <laughs> Clear. I don't know what I... I'm a little jet-lagged, so sorry. Shawl, stripes, here we go. I'll accept stripes. As a son of the American South who found a home in Scotland 12 years ago, I'm deeply grateful to you for writing this book. My question is about the polarization in both my home country and my adopted land of Scotland. I wonder if you see evidence of collaboration, which I think is the link between truth and reconciliation, collaboration between Muslims, Jews, LGBT, Hispanics, people of color, because I believe that source of collaboration, to use the metaphor of the marquee that we're in, is the sparks that may result in how to be an anti-racist. So I think one probably a good thing, it's probably not the best way to describe it, well, one good effect of Trumpism is, is Trump has targeted those four groups. And as a result, those, but he's, Trump's, Trump activists and, and politicals are now trying to retrench against their anti-Semitism. Um, but obviously, you know, their, their voters um, are, you know, have expressed anti-Semitic views and have shot up um, uh, houses of worship. And so what's actually happening 
on some level is, you know, people are recognizing uh, the ways in which white nationalists, whether white nationalists are holding guns or white nationalists in the, in the White House, are fundamentally targeting those four groups. I don't know, and, and so as a result, it's bringing them together on some level. But at the same time, there are deep bigotries still separating those groups, and there, there are ways in which those groups still imagine that their cause is the cause, and, and, and it prevents them, I think, from, I don't know what D-Rate thinks about Oh, no, I was talking to her. Oh, no, keep going. Sure. Let's talk to the mic. Um, do you know what's wild about the South is that half the black people in the United States actually live in the South, like today, which is really wild given that there are almost no elected leaders at any state position in the South. And Mississippi just got a couple people in Mississippi uh, at the local level, but not at the state level. I think we have time for one more question. Um, I was whispering to her about that and whatever. I will do yellow shirt over here. Um, thank you so much to both of you for, for talking. Um, I wonder if I could ask about your thoughts on the role of music in building an anti-fascist society. Um, certainly in the UK we have probably more than ever lots and lots of young white people listening to music made by young black people, often from very economically marginalised um, groups, maybe without much insight into where that music comes from. Um, and I wondered if you could, what your thoughts are on, I'm thinking specifically of grime, I guess, as, as a, a form of music. I wonder what your thoughts are on how that could be harnessed for a, a good in society, for building an anti-racist society, while dealing with all the problems around cultural appropriation and other things. Sure. So, so I think, obviously, musicians, popular musicians, have the platform to spread anti-racist ideas through their music. But what they also have the ability to do is, is produce art that activists, particularly engaged in very difficult uh, and emotionally draining um, and long-standing 400 days um, of activism can use to rebuild themselves, to charge themselves, right, on a daily basis to, you know, music sometimes gives you courage, right, that you wouldn't ordinarily have, you know, if you didn't put pop in that song. I mean, Beyonce. we talk about... <laughs> exactly. I mean, we, we people most notably understand, like, civil rights movement in, in which... You would have, you know, I'm thinking of the Montgomery bus boycott in, 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 in Montgomery in, um, and each, which lasted almost a year. And, and almost each day, those primarily black women domestics who were primarily the ones who were not uh, uh, taking the buses would, would crowd into the church or the churches and, and listen to gospel, listen to gospel songs that would energize them, that would, that would give them the ability to go on the next day and protest. And so I think both spreading anti-racist ideas, you know, and, you know, giving people the courage to yet again step out there and protest power. So everybody, Ibram is not doing a signing right after because he is taking a plane right back to go home, but he has already signed the books uh, before. So uh, if you go to the bookstore, you'll find signed copies of his book. Let's give him a hand. Thank you so much, Ibram. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and keep up to date on events, booking information, and more by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search at EdBookFest. The Edinburgh International Book Festival takes place every August in Charlotte Square Gardens.